All right, well, turn with me to the book of Ezekiel, to chapter 16, as we continue on in our discussion of this amazing prophecy, uh, amazing in so many different components, really, just as we understand all that God has done through this man as we come to this text. We've seen the various ways that Ezekiel has communicated to the, the exiles there in Babylon by the Kibar River where he is ministering. We, we've seen the, the way that he has proclaimed to them through mime, through, through non-vocal drama, through prophetic speech as God has spoke to him, he would bring to them through ecstatic vision as God has taken him in a vision to the temple to see the atrocities and he has come back. And he has reported to them all that he saw for the, the figurative and, and illustration of, of jobs and professions that he has used as a mechanism to convey and communicate the power of this prophecy from the Lord. And now we find ourselves in this newest section of allegory wherein uh, an allegory, as you remember, is like an extended parable. It, a parable is figurative language that casts known truths alongside of spiritual truths to convey a message. And now in an allegory, we have multiple spiritual truths laid alongside of multiple well-known circumstances to convey a broader message. So it is the same as a parable, although parables typically have one central message to convey. An allegory has many things which it conveys and again very uh, different than the word allegorical and and that type of interpretation which uh, becomes uh, something that is is not literal and, and is difficult to define and and so allegory very different from allegorical you remember that we talked about to, and often referenced dr charles feinberg one of the great jewish scholars from uh, now home with the Lord. And he spoke about this chapter as the most forceful and vivid chapter in the book of Ezekiel, which already for what we've seen in 15 chapters is a massive statement. But so much more as we had begun to see in our message last week. And so because of the power and force of this text, I've titled it A Provocative Proclamation. A provocative proclamation, and we continue on in our second part of that discussion. As you might remember, there are six sections in this chapter. We covered two fully last week and started into the third. We'll continue and, and Lord willing, complete that tonight. The first section was a graphic birth in verses 1 to 6. And, and in our allegory of section 1, that graphic birth, we were shown an abandoned child. And the allegory was a picture of the spiritual truth of the nation of Israel. That in their foundation, in their beginning and inception, they were as an abandoned child. It's, uh, it was indeed a, a graphic birth because of these particulars. The second section we saw was a glorious upbringing in verses 7 to 14. And, and the allegory shifts from a, a newborn babe to the maturation of a young woman. And we see in that, text, in, in that text, those verses particularly, that this young woman was being prepared to be a queen. 
And so now we move chronologically from Israel's birth, which we saw did have a very specific point in, in the book of Genesis with Jacob and his interaction with the angel of the Lord. And then the time where Jacob's 12 children moved into Israel, that was the period of the first six verses of the birth, the nuance and, and, and introduction, if you will, of the nation of Israel. And now we move ahead in this state of the maturation of this young queen to the time of uh, on through their deliverance into the land and particularly the Davidic and Solomonic reigns where we saw uh, a very enlightened period in the nation of Israel. There was still, to be sure, there was idolatry and there was wickedness, but as a whole, the country was moving towards uh, a time of honoring God as they started into this new monarchy with David as their king. So that, that second section was that beginning. And then we moved into the third section. So we had a, a graphic birth and a glorious upbringing. And then we started into our third section, which was a grotesque departure. A grotesque departure in verses 15 to 34. The first eight verses in, in verses 15 to 22, the, the allegory describes harlotry. And the level of harlotry is, is, is with anyone who may be willing. It, it's really a very deplorable consideration. The, the component and the, and the level of the, the harlotry that, that is portrayed for us. And then in verses 16 to 19, we see that the, har, that the harlotry moves on and it involves all of the precious gifts which God had given to the young queen. So, and we consider that those, of course, are the gifts which God had given to Israel. In verse 17, we saw the concept of images of gold and silver. And then in verse 18, the concept of offering is introduced and it's repeated in verse 19. And what it's telling us there is that the allegory is using the metaphor or the reality of a harlot to show idolatry and spiritual harlotry that was going on within the nation. This reminds us of those parallel concepts of immorality and adultery alongside of idolatry. And we saw that clear back in chapter 6 and verse 9 of Ezekiel. That same parallel of idolatry being compared with immorality and infidelity and particularly within the confines of a marriage. And we'll see more of that repeated in our text this evening. Verses 20 to 21 confirm our harlotry and idolatry as we see the, the allegory for the, the real condition of idolatry coming forward. And really this is the maximum expression of idolatry in verses 20 to 21. And that is the sacrifice of children. It's inconceivable for us and yet it's not inconceivable at all. For we recognize that that very thing would have been a much more graphic and real reality had we have had a different outcome in our election. And yet, it has not resolved itself. There are 60 million children that have been murdered in our country since 1972. And it continues to escalate every day. 
So the fact that it does not escalate further is, is a reason to praise God. But there is still huge work for us to do in this area. There is still a great need to consider the, the importance of life and the, the needs of the unborn in our country. Verse 22 is an internal summary of this grotesque departure. And we see that there is this escalation that's going on. It says in verse 22, Besides all your abominations and harlotries, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare and squirming in your blood. Now that very phrase takes us back to the first six verses where he was talking about this beginning of their birth. And, and references for us this graphic birth that came forward. And what he is saying is, you don't remember from whence you came. And isn't that the case for many of us? We so quickly forget from where the Lord has delivered us. We forget where we were before that. We forget the mindset that we had. We forget the, the hardness of heart, the darkness of our mind, the things that we would allow ourselves to willingly and even desirously enter into. Oh, what a joy it would be again to, to go out on a Friday night to a bar and just get smashed. No, it wouldn't be, but we sure thought it was. But do we think back to that? Do we remember that that was us? Because that's what Israel is doing. They're totally abandoning the recognition that God brought them all through this. This immediately applies, beloved, not just to our country, but to you and to me. This is what we have to remember. This is the focus of this text. This is not a broad national picture. It is appropriate for us to look and consider the United States in light of Jerusalem. But remember, this is the first specific prophecy. It is no longer to a nation. It is individual. It is the individual components of salvation and of wickedness and the contrast of those two that Ezekiel continues to bring forward and to bring to our attention. Incredible for us to recognize this. Verse 23 then is the introduction to the rest of the grotesque departure which we really have not delved into and we will briefly now. The, the first part of verse 23 says, Woe, woe to you. This is a warning. Whenever you see the word woe in the Old Testament, it's a warning. It, it is, a, it is a, an, a, a huge proclamation of the danger that lies ahead. But there is more to it in this case. There is a lament. There is a mourning of all that God has done, and for that which is not recognized. So it is both a lament and a warning. And then in verse 24, it confirms for us the main offense of idolatry, the high places which they built their shrines upon. It, it reminds us very keenly of a text from the book of James. And in James chapter 4 and verse 4, we see James write, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be of the friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. We are to be separate. We are to be other. We are to be holy. 
as we talked about on Sunday, right? At the conclusion of our message from 1 Peter 2.9, you are to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, and that that applied individually to every one of us. What does it mean to be holy? To be separated, to be set apart, to be other. So we must recognize that we too must be other than the world and their idolatry. Verse 25 reveals more of the grotesqueness of Israel's departure. And it's, it's hard to even read these verses as they are so verbally offensive. And we must ask ourselves when we consider that, how much more offensive is it to God to recognize that this is what's going on? If we are offended to consider this kind of terminology and, and, and really the, the brutal picture that's brought to our minds, how does the reality of this in God's mind occur? As we, looked at verse, or as we look at verses 26 to 29, we see that they reveal Israel's harlotry. Actually, remember, their idolatry. That is the main offense, but the allegory places these two side by side. Harlotry being very familiar to all cultures of all times, and particularly this culture. But the idolatry is what's being really brought forward. That is the offense that God is talking about and is bringing his response to it it is so deplorable in verse 27 that even the philistines are ashamed of what jerusalem is doing these were some of the most wicked of people we go back and you go back through the judges and you see some of the activities that are going on with the philistines and you think even they are incensed at the lewdness, at the immorality, and at the idolatry which has gone on. What, what does that mean? What is he talking about there? Well, what it means is that the Philistines were every bit as idolatrous, but they didn't go after the gods of the other nations. They stayed to their own system of idolatry. They didn't go out and seek out the Egyptian idolatry and the others. They stayed within their own confines, but not so Jerusalem. Not at all. And all of these reflecting the idolatry that went on with these groups. Verses 30 to 34 become the summary of the grotesque departure. Let's take a look at them together. Verse 30 of Ezekiel 16. How languishing is your heart, declares the Lord God, while you do these things, the actions of a bold-faced harlot. Your heart is continually hardened. Beloved, is not this the danger that we often talk about when we talk about sin? Our consciences can be seared, and eventually we can be given over, as Romans 1 tells us to the depravity and to the immoral behavior. Why is it so vital that we continue to pursue the Lord and to understand the sin that still goes on in our lives? Because if we allow it to go on without understanding what it is, inadvertently we can become seared in our consciences to this truth. Or as the text so beautifully says, we can languish in our heart. I don't want a languishing heart. I don't want to be a lukewarm Christian. I want my heart on fire. 
I want to continually be reminded of when my faith was new and fresh and I was excited about Christ. And every day was another opportunity to go forth with the gospel. And who might it be? Who might listen to my story today? Do you remember those times? That's what he wants from each of us. Not a languishing heart. Not one that allows our sin to darken us and to pull us from the fire such that we smolder and eventually will go out. No, that can't be us at all. Verse 31 continues, When you build your shrine at the beginning of every street and made your high place in every square in disdaining money, you were not like a harlot. You adulterous wife, who takes strangers instead of her husband? Here we come back to that concept of idolatry being painted alongside of adultery in marriage. And the worst of all possible offenses. Here is the husband who desires to love you. Who is willing to give his all. Who is willing to commit to serve you. To minister to you. To be your spiritual leader in every way. And you would rather go out. And interact in immorality with a stranger. What a huge offense. What an amazing picture. How grotesque of a departure is that verse 33 men give gifts to all harlots but you give your gifts to all your lovers to bribe them to come to you from every direction for your harlotries they're not being paid for their services they're so desirous of their idolatry that they're going and paying other nations to come back why would other nations because this is paralleling harlotry, but the reality of the payment is true. This is an allegory. There are several components that are accurate and correct. Why would a nation desire to pay if you were worshiping their gods? Well, we think back and, and we go back to the book of Acts, right? And there is that text where the, the, uh, the Ephesians are having a fit because Paul is there and what's he going to do? He's going to tear down their businesses because what do they do? They make these little statues of Aphrodite. Well, it's going to tear this down, or of Artemis. It's going to tear down our income. It's hitting me in the pocketbook. Well, you see, that's the thing. If you bring other modes of worship, other forms of idols, you get to bring your little gold and silver statues, your little wood statues. And so there's a money that's exchanged. It's beneficial financially for the other country to have their worship of their God in your country. But Israel is paying the country. They don't even realize that there's a financial gain to be made. Rather, they are paying to bring this in. And God's like, you are such idiots. How can you do this? Verse 34, thus you are different from those women in your harlotries in that no one plays the harlot as you do because you give money and no money is given you. Thus you are different. Ignorant that you are unbelievable in the way that you would carry this forward. What an amazing consideration of the, the harlotry and idolatry and paying money for immorality. It's just inconceivable. And then verse 35 moves us from a grotesque departure to our fourth point, a guaranteed judgment. A guaranteed judgment in verses 35 to 43. Look at those verses with me. 
Therefore, O harlot, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, twice repeated, this is God's word, hear what comes against you. Hear the accusation of a guaranteed judgment. Because your lewdness was poured out and your nakedness uncovered through your harlotries with your lovers and with all your detestable idols and because of the blood of your sons which you gave to idols. Therefore, behold, I will gather all your lovers with whom you took pleasure. Even all those whom you loved and all those whom you hated So I will gather them against you from every direction and expose your nakedness to them that they may see all your nakedness. Thus I will judge you like women who commit adultery or shed blood are judged and I will bring on you the blood of wrath and jealousy. I will also give you into the hands of your lovers and they will tear down your shrines, demolish your high places, strip you of your clothing, take away your jewels and will leave you naked and bare. They will incite a crowd against you and they will stone you and cut you into pieces with their swords. They will burn your houses with fire and execute judgment on you in the sight of many women." Then I will stop you from playing the harlot, and you will also no longer pay your lovers. This section of text shows us that that which they got away with, that's what they, what they thought they were doing in secret, that God did not know, now he is going to make plain. It's one thing for a husband or a wife to cheat on their beloved spouse. It is another thing when that immorality is made public. And that what you thought was happening in secret is now revealed to all. I'm reminded of, of, a, of a statement that my, one of my professors used to make, Dr. Greg Harris. And, and he said, you know, we think we're getting away with things and we allow some of the sins of our mind to go on. Sometimes we'll even... Uh, allow them to manifest and, and we can even fascinate on those type of things whatever they may be but imagine if the sins which come into your mind which you know of in your thought life were not those that were private for you but were cast upon the jumbotron at dodger stadium for fifty thousand people to see on two different screens of a quarter acre each Well, that is the reality of our lives, is it not? For God knows every thought in our mind. And and now he is telling them, that which you thought you did in secret, I will expose to all people. Your nakedness and your shame that you thought was going on behind closed doors, I will make it apparent to everyone. And the reality of the judgment that comes here is no longer speaking simply about an allegory. These are the realities of what would happen to them. They would be naked and bare. Their jewels would be taken away. The the crowd that would come against them, notice in verse 40, that they will incite a crowd against you and they will stone you and cut you to pieces with their swords. Double judgment because of the double wickedness that was going on. The penalty for harlotry was to be stoned. The national penalty for harlotry was to have the sword unleashed against you. Both will be brought forward because of the level of wickedness that was being experienced. 
it was inconceivable and that there they would have all of these judgments brought upon their heads and the Lord's use of the harlot's lovers to judge them. Verse 42 reveals to us the extent of God's wrath where it says, So I will calm my fury against you and my jealousy will depart from you and I will be pacified and angry no more. God extends the full measure of his wrath. Now there's a a wonderful consideration here. As as we look into prophetic texts, we understand that sometimes there are different stages of fulfillment that occur in immediately adjacent components of the text. There can be a prophetic fulfillment that will occur in the next few years. We know we are now within five years of God destroying Jerusalem at the hand of the Babylonians. So there is an immediate fulfillment that comes to bear. And then there is a a more long-ranging fulfillment. There is the returning of them. There is the, in this case, the expiration of God's wrath, that he will fully judge them. But yet when we look in texts like Isaiah, we see him proclaiming that his arm is still bare, that it is still reached out, that judgment is still going on. And if we went back, for instance, and if you're taking notes, write down Ezekiel chapter 11 and verse 16. And in Ezekiel eleven sixteen, we see that there is going to be a restoration that is occurring, but it only happens when there is a removal from the land of all abominations. And you might remember, if you were with us during that discussion, that that has not yet occurred. Because there are still the two Muslim shrines on top of the Temple Mount. Today, the abominations have not been removed. So the prophetic texts from Ezekiel are as yet ongoing. So this extension of the full extent of God's wrath, we're not clearly told if that has occurred yet. If it occurred during the time of the exile and the destruction of Jerusalem. It seems likely that it has not because that also tells us that we don't know even now if Israel is permanently in the land. They may be, but they may not be. Because we don't have that whole picture. So we understand prophecy, but beloved, we hold it loosely. Recognizing God has given us great pieces of insight, but it's not like he has painted with the clarity that he has shown us the gospel. So there's this this wonderful peace that we see at this point. God repeats his justification for his guaranteed judgment in verse 43 where he says, because you have not remembered the days of your youth, but have enraged me by all these things, behold, I in turn will bring your conduct down on your own head, declares the Lord God, so that you will not commit this lewdness on top of all your other abominations. The end is the result. Why is he doing it? So that you won't do it again. You know, when we discipline our children, it's a challenging thing. It was hard to spank my kids. But I prayed that they would learn that I might not have to spank them again for the same thing. Sometimes it worked, sometimes not so much. But that is why God is disciplining the nation of Israel. 
so that they will not do this again, so that they will not commit this idolatry. We're going to see why it is so important that that happens when we get to the end of our text this evening. But it is just a powerful reminder for us that God has a purpose in this judgment. He is not randomly bringing judgment. It is not the wrath of a man who just wants to lash out in vengeance. No. It is corrective. Always God's judgment within the scripture is restorative. When we go to Matthew 18 and we look at those processes, what is the point? So that we can kick somebody out of church because they're just a sinner and they got no business with the righteous ones like us? Hardly. We want to draw them back. We want them to know the love of God. We want to express that to them. We want them to repent and return. It's always been the same and God shows that to us here. Well, in, in verses 44 to 59, this guaranteed judgment gives way to a gruesome parallel. A gruesome parallel. Look at verse 44 with me, if you would. Behold, everyone who quotes Proverbs will quote this proverb concerning you, saying, like mother, like daughter. You are the daughter of your mother who loathed her husband and children. You are also the sister of your sisters who loathed their husbands and children. Your mother was a Hittite and your father an Amorite. Your older sister is Samaria who lives north of you with her daughters. And your younger sister who lives south of you is Sodom with her daughters. Yet you have not merely walked in their ways or done according to their abominations. But as if that were too little, you acted more corruptly in all your conduct than they. They are are moving away to a gruesome parallel. Shouldn't they have learned from their bigger sister in the north, from Israel? What happened? The Assyrians came in and hauled them off to captivity, those that they did not kill. Clearly being proclaimed by the prophets in the word which they had that it was because of their idolatry what about sodom well we don't need to spend much time refreshing our memories on sodom do we genesis 18 sticks pretty powerfully in our minds when we consider the angelic beings that came down to sodom that the men were so desirous of having homosexual relations with that they sought to beat down the door and even when the angel struck them blind they were so incensed and motivated by their sin and their immorality and their desire that even in their blindness they continued to claw to the door and forever the name sodom and homosexuality are linked and inseparable it is a a gruesome parallel. Look at verses 48 to 52 that carry this gruesome parallel still deeper. As I live, declares the Lord God, Sodom, your sister and her daughters, have not done as you and your daughters have done. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had arrogance, abundant food, and careless ease, but she did not help the poor and needy. Thus they were haughty and committed abominations before me. Therefore I removed them when I saw it. Furthermore, Samaria did not commit half of your sins. For you have multiplied your abominations more than they. 
Thus you have made your sisters appear righteous by all your abominations which you committed. Also bear your disgrace in that you have made judgment favorable for your sisters because of your sins in which you acted more abominably than they. They are more in the right than you. Yes, be also ashamed and bear your disgrace and that you made your sisters appear righteous. The discussion of Sodom's initial sin ought strike us like a size 42 Louisville slugger right up alongside the head. Is it homosexuality? No. What does the text say? It is because she was arrogant. She had abundance of food. She had careless ease. United States of America? Never has a country had the abundance of food. Never has a country had the careless ease. Never has there been a lack of need as there is in this country at this time. We are the top 1% of the world nationally. The poorest in our country are richer than most of the rich of this planet have ever been. And they did not help the poor and needy. And I'm struck to consider which of you having the world's goods sees his brother in need and says, be warmed and filled. How careless can we become? How prideful, because this is the sin which moved them beyond simply ignoring the needy to rampant homosexuality. What a striking consideration. What a gruesome parallel. So much so, and Judah's Jerusalem sin is so much more that they make Sodom look righteous. Not just in this act, but in all their acts. They make Israel look righteous. You have done twice the immorality. You have done twice the idolatry. What a horrific consideration is this. Well, after a graphic birth and a glorious upbringing, a, a grotesque departure and a gruesome, or a, a guaranteed judgment and a gruesome parallel, and, and all of the gratuitous language that's associated with these, we look to our final point, which is a gracious remembrance. A gracious remembrance. The same considerations of this wickedness continue all the way through to verse 60. And in verse 60, we see this element of a gracious remembrance. Nevertheless, I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you receive your sisters, both your older and your younger, and I will give them to you as daughters, but not because of your covenant. Thus I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall know that I am the Lord, so that you may remember and be ashamed and never open your mouth anymore because of your humiliation when I have forgiven you for all that you have done, the Lord God 
declares. It's incredible for us to understand all that is going on in, in this. The eternal Abrahamic covenant is what's being described as the covenant of youth. Look again at verse 60. Never, nevertheless, I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth. My covenant is the Abrahamic covenant. He is speaking about that which is the eternal covenant that he made between himself and his people. Not the temporal Mosaic or Sinaitic covenant. We see that in verse 61. Look there. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you receive your sister, both your older and your younger, and I will give them to you as daughters, but not because of your covenant. Your covenant is the Sinaitic. It is the Mosaic. It's that which they participated in bilaterally with God. The Abrahamic covenant, as you remember, is a unilateral covenant. It is with God alone. Abraham didn't have much part in it, did he? God puts him to sleep. And he sees in a vision as God and the smoking oven moves through the pieces which he has cut. No, there is a distinct difference being made here between that which is temporal and that which is eternal. That which from a temporal point of view, from the Mosaic Covenant, was concluded at the cross, at the Lord Jesus Christ's death. The Mosaic Covenant concluded at the cross. But the Abrahamic Covenant does not conclude. Then notice he talks about a coming future covenant will be established in verse 62. Thus I will establish future tense i will establish my covenant with you and you shall know that i am the lord well if the abrahamic is his covenant that was the eternal established covenant what is the new covenant that he will establish oh i just said it didn't i yes it is it's the new covenant that's right it is the new covenant that he brings forward and there is a launching off between the Abrahamic covenant into the new covenant. And we've spoken about a couple of times very briefly about the telescoping nature of the covenants. All the way back from the Noahic on through into the Abrahamic, on ahead into the Davidic and the new covenant. And some some wonderful scholastic materials that we will dig up and we will at some point dive into each of those covenants. And, And you can see each of the three components of the covenants. And then you'll see how pieces of those transport one to another every bit as directly as do the seals, bowls, and trumpets in Revelation where we move from the seventh seal into the trumpet judgment and from the seventh trumpet into the bowl judgments. So they're all concurrent and all telescoping one from another. So also with the covenants. God's covenants, the Abrahamic and the new, are all because of his grace it is indeed a gracious remembrance in verse 63 the never opening of the mouth that is to go on is because of humiliation and shame 
They'll never open their mouth again in pride is what he's saying. They will open their mouths again when they serve in the millennial temple, when they fulfill the Abrahamic covenant, when they do what they were supposed to do and become a blessing to all nations. Oh, they will speak again. And as a national entity, But here he's saying that they will not speak in their pride, they will not speak in their humiliation, and they will not speak in their shame. Israel is not now enjoying these covenant blessings, but they will. And beloved, we must be those who reach out and are a part of this. You know, the blessing of of having lunch with Miguel today, and he was giving me some background on Mobile that I was not aware of, but I was really excited to hear about some of the the old town Jewish families that were part of the fabric and beginning of this community. I don't know if you realize that or not, but it's something we need to keep our eyes out for, that such exists in our town. I've shared with you and even mentioned this evening Dr. Greg Harris and have talked with you about some of his books, The Darkness and the Glory, which are brilliant pieces. His most recent book was called The Stone and the Glory, and because of the work of Slavic Gospel Union and Rob Provost, he was asked to rewrite the first two chapters to change it to make it more fitting for a Jewish evangelism book. So he rewrote the first two chapters and it's re-released as the stone and the glory of Israel. If you have friends who are Jewish in background and who are not messianic, converted, completed Jews, you need to get a copy of that book and you need to read it and then you need to buy a second copy and you need to give it to them and you need to talk to them about it because it is one of the most powerful Jewish evangelism tools that exists today. The stone and the glory of is the stone and the glory of Israel. The stone and the glory of Israel. Uh, right after we get through the first of the new year, um, I'll be talking much more about his other book, The Darkness and Glory, and I hope to have all of them in our bookstore. But you can get it on Amazon now. The Stone and the Glory of Israel, Dr. Greg Harris. Fabulous work. So it applies to us. We are those who must carry this forward. Have you read Revelation 7 and Revelation 14 recently? The 144,000 witnesses, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes. Man, that's just exciting. When you see the new song that they sing that only they can sing, we can be a part of that. We can be a part of moving that forward. Can you imagine what it will be? To see them, to see the Jewish nation return in a nationalistic sense to their right role in ministering to the Lord in all of the nations of the earth being blessed. We're going to see many of the judgments in, in the next section of Ezekiel against the nations. But God restores them. He brings them all back. And he does so because of his love for his people. God showed Ezekiel that repentance is not produced by the thundering of the Mosaic law and the terror of Mount Sinai. But people's hearts are stirred with the tenderness of God's gracious and steadfast love of His eternal covenants. To recognize that God is yet still 
despite the darkness in the hearts of men of our country, of our world, he is still extending grace, still desiring that all should come to know him, that all would come to repentance. Such a beautiful picture for us. And the restoration of wicked Sodom, that, that love reaches down to the lowest depths of moral creation to restore that land and those around it. As God reaches down, beloved, we too must reach down. You know, I'm reminded of the text which I mentioned in passing, uh, I believe, Sunday morning from the book of Jude. And Jude, verse 20, But you, beloved, building yourself up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life, and have mercy on some who are doubting. We are those who are to be extending mercy. We who have received much mercy, have you received much mercy from God? We are to be extending mercy to those who are doubting. And in verse 23, save others, snatching them out of the fire. We're in a rescue mission. We're firemen. We're going in to pull them out. There are bodies out there preparing to burn. We got to go get them. And on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. It's not pretty business. If you're going to go out and save people, you're going to have to reach down in the depths. If you're going to pull people up out of the muck and mire, you've got to get a little muck and mire on your hands. And it's dangerous work because you can get pulled into that muck and mire. But we're not told that we are not to partake of it because it could be dangerous, because we might get dirty. But we're told to go all the more with zeal in the power of the Lord, understanding that that gracious remembrance is what has drawn us from darkness to light. And it's such a blessing to recognize that although written about 2,600 years ago, This text, it fits in Christ Fellowship Baptist Church and in modern America on November 9th, 2016. What a praise for the eternal word of God. Amen.